Hi, everybody. Welcome back into the Irish NFL show in partnership with our friends over at Pundit Arena. We've got the usual team in today, Colin, Mark and Brian. But you can see today we have got a very special guest. Um, look, he is a three-time American sports writer of the year from NBC Sports Football Morning in America, Peter King. Peter, I can tell you right now it is an honour and a pleasure to have you on. Hello from Ireland. Welcome into the Irish NFL show. Oh, thanks so much. Can I tell you my Ireland story? Yes, of course. I mean, this was maybe about eight years ago. I was never uh, a big, like, there, there's, there's three things that happen. I was never a big Guinness guy. And then I took a tour of the Guinness factory and the Guinness brewery. And it felt like I was drinking a vanilla milkshake. And I just, ever since then, I am a Guinness nerd. I live in Brooklyn and there's a, uh, there's a, a bar in our neighborhood that has Guinness. So I wear them out quite regularly. Um, the, uh, the two other parts of this story, when my wife and I visited there, I said, I really want to drive. Okay. Because I've seen the pictures of, you know, the villages in Ireland. And when we went there, we drove um, all through Central Ireland. We had the greatest time. And, and I said, I want to drive through Ireland. And so we did. And the most amazing thing is that anytime you would come close to another car, one of you would have to go off into the ditch, you know, <laughs> or into the peat, as they would say. And so, and so I learned that, uh, you know, it was, it was the first few times where a car is coming straight at you. You get a little nervous, but then after a while, it's just the way you drive, okay? And then the last thing was, is there, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the town, but it might, might have been Carlo. I kind of forget where it is, but it was, it was, there was a village that we stayed at for two nights at just some country inn. And uh, we went downstairs and had dinner one day and on the menu uh, was zebra. And I said, well, I mean, you know, it's not every day you look at a menu and there's zebra. So I had the zebra. It was really tender and delicious. So those are my three Ireland stories for you. I love it, I love it. And I think it must be <laughs> column, column zebra must be a Carlo uh, speciality column, I'm not sure. Yeah, must be, um, Peter. The the Guinness Brewery. If I threw a stone out my window, I could hit it. I would say oh from where gosh. where I am in in Dublin, I can. When they're brewing, I can actually uh, smell you can it. Smell and, it? Uh, oh, yeah, God. It, it wafts out over the the city. Um, yeah. As Michael said, it, it's an absolute honor to to get the opportunity to to chat to you. And he well, thank you in your your incredible bio, one of the most respected NFL. Um, writers around, author of five books, created MMQB, uh, television, radio, podcast. I suppose given, um, you know, your experience covering the league, and I, I know you won't be able to talk about everything, but could you give us, I mean, some of your favorite moments from your time covering the league? Um, well, I'll give you three just kind of brief ones. Um, in 1995, Sports Illustrated sent me to Green Bay. Mike Holmgren, who was the coach at the time, gave me permission to do a story on a week in the life of the Packers. And at the time, the Packers were 
getting hot. This was mid-season, 95. And they were about to play for, at the time, NFC Central uh, superiority uh, with Minnesota. And so that week, I went to Green Bay. Uh, there were three nights where I ended the night at Brett Favre's house. And, um, you know, so that was an adventure all in itself. Um, but just getting to really feel the birth of a great team in the NFL was a lot of fun. The most interesting thing was on Thursday afternoon, Holmgren said to me, now you won't quite believe this, but just sit in the back of the office and you can hear what I'm about to do. And he called in two rookies, uh, LaShawn Johnson and Travis Jervie, and he chastised them for 20 minutes because LaShawn Johnson and Travis Jervie had bought a lion and were keeping the lion in their apartment in Green Bay. And on that day, Travis Jervie had a huge uh, bandage on his arm. And this is how Holmgren found out. He had this huge bandage on his arm because he had been playing with the lion in their apartment and the lion scratched him and totally opened up his arm. And so Holmgren told them, you know, they tried to justify having the lion and he goes, if that lion is not out of your apartment and shipped somewhere by Monday, I'm cutting you both. And I'm going to tell every general manager in the league not to sign either one of you because you're both knuckleheads. So that would, that would probably be one. I think maybe the second one would be in 2013. I started this, uh, this new website called the MMQB at Sports Illustrated. And I did, I decided that what I really wanted to do at, in this point in my career is I really wanted to take people where they could not go and take people where they really wanted to see something that they had never seen before. So I got permission to spend a week in the life of an NFL officiating crew. And when I did that, it was the most enlightening thing I've done in 37 seasons covering the NFL because, you know, NFL officials go and have a normal life for four or five days every week. One of them was uh, a high school teacher, the back judge, Dino Paganelli. Um, I sat in his uh, social studies class in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then went home with him. He's a widower and he had three children. He had to take care of these kids and put them to bed every night, do homework with them, do everything. And then he would stay up for another hour or two doing film work on the game he was about to do that week. That was incredibly enlightening. And if anybody wants to know about a week in the life of an officiating crew, Google it, you'll find it, Google that with my name. But that was really a fun thing to do. And the last thing, I've gotten to the point where uh, over the years, a week after the season, I always write about something that everybody, I think, wants to read. So I take a great moment in the Super Bowl, let's say, and then I write about it the following week. So um, after Tom Brady beat Atlanta, came back from 28 to 3 down, um, basically, uh, I, I texted uh, Brady and I said, hey, this is what I do every year after the Super Bowl. I've done it with you once or twice. 
I want to spend an hour with you somewhere to dissect this, uh, this incredible comeback. And I said to him, you know, basically I want to record it because uh, one day your son or, or whoever, future generations of Brady's are going to want to know dad, uncle Tom, whoever, you know, what happened? that day when you played Atlanta in the Super Bowl. How in the world did that happen? So I don't hear from him for a couple of days. And finally, uh, Thursday or Friday, he writes back and he goes, okay, I'll do it, one hour. And I said, I'll give you your choice. You can either meet me uh, late Friday in Boston at my home, or you can meet me Sunday in Montana where I have uh, you know, a getaway place. So which one do you think I'm going to choose? <laughs> so anyway, got on a plane, went to Montana, met Brady. Uh, we spent about two hours together. But the great highlight of that, the great highlight is he was incredibly forthcoming, told me everything. I had an incredible column. It was great, all that. But the best thing and the thing that I got the most, most reaction on, I took a photo with Brady outside in the snow in Northern Montana and him smiling, me sort of smiling and under it, it said photo for the MMQB by Giselle Bunchen. <laughs> so anyway, those are, those are three little banquet type stories that sometimes I, I tell when people say, what is it like covering the NFL? Uh, Peter, uh, Mark is a Patriots fan, but that game still gives the other three of us nightmares. <laughs> the <laughs> it comeback. was amazing, yeah. Yeah, just uh, going back to your time covering the draft, and in particular the Eli Manning period in 2004, when obviously Eli didn't want to go to San Diego, San Diego at the time, and they got the trade to the Giants. And obviously you would have great insights from the Manning family. Over the past month or two, there's been discussions around when everybody thought it was going to be the Jets and Lawrence potentially saying, I don't want to go to the Jets because of the troubles the Jets have had over the years and they don't seem to run things in, in a manner that they really should. Yeah. And, and now people are even coming up with conversations around, will he even take the option to go to Jacksonville when he's selected? Just watching, going forward, because we're going to come to the drafts period soon enough, what's your thoughts on the whole situation there? See, I think the Eli Manning thing was, um, he was, I think, kind of energized by the simple fact that, you know, he had a father who, if you do some research and look up Archie Manning, you know, Archie Manning was drafted number one overall in, I think it might have been 1971 by the New Orleans Saints and the Saints were awful. And Archie Manning's career was spent getting the living crap beat out of him. And he never was the player everybody thought he would be because he was always getting hit and, and all that. So I think Eli felt, look, I saw what happened to my dad. I didn't see it, but I know what happened to my dad and I do not want that to happen to me. So I would rather one or two fan bases hate my guts till the end of time and get to go to a place that has a chance than just become a sacrificial lamb 
for what he felt was a lousy franchise in San Diego. Um, and I'm not sure that that was really valid because, I mean, the Chargers were not at rock bottom the way that uh, the Saints were, um, you know, in the early 70s. But in this particular case, I think it's going to be hard for Trevor Lawrence to, quote, call his shot, end quote, because I would argue with you that um, in today's day and time, if you were the first pick in the draft, is there any guarantee that next year the number one pick in the draft is going to go to a team that maybe just had an off year but has some really good players on it? I doubt it. It's going to be a, a, a crappy team, and you know he's not going to really be able to go in and be good right away. So I think, and and look, I believe last year Joe Burrow. Uh, I think Joe Burrow and his family considered it because who wants to go to Cincinnati? I mean, I lived in Cincinnati for five years. It's a wonderful town. The football team is not good, and I don't think it's ever going to be really good. But but I think that the way Trevor Lawrence looks at it now, he's going to cast his fate. He's a very religious guy. And I think he's going to say, God, I'm in your hands. And uh, whatever happens, happens. So I don't think we're going to see Trevor Lawrence pull a power move and try to get traded from Jacksonville to somewhere else. I think the Joe Burrow situation is slightly different because he's, he's, his family are close enough to Cincinnati. I think they only live in there. Yeah, but he didn't care. He didn't care. No, okay. he just didn't care. But you know what you say, Brian, the, the difference there and, and what is very interesting is that, you know, if he say shot his way out of town and, and said, I'm not playing for Cincinnati, I don't care. Uh, if, if that happened, uh, you know, his family and a lot of people would have said, Joe Burrow's a, a bad guy. And, and, and he, he's just, he's Joe Burrow is not a confrontational guy. You know, he's not a conflict guy. He's a, he's a strong willed guy and an opinionated guy, but he doesn't want his family living two and a half hours from Cincinnati and having everybody in his hometown say, uh, there's the idiot who, uh, who wouldn't play for, you know, our local team. Hey, Peter, you say who would like to go to Cincinnati? I tell you, Ben Roethlisberger doesn't mind going into Cincinnati too much. Not, That's not right. He likes record. playing there, rightfully so. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it's funny, you mentioned about the, the draft there. We had Ryan Leaf on the show last week, and he had a great wow. line that um, he was the first first-rounder from Montana and that there have been more Mannings drafted in the first round than there have Montanians in the <laughs> draft That's industry. really funny. As you allude to all three uh, first first picks, obviously. Um, Peter, going back through all the history, I think one of the great things that we see and comes through in your articles, like the ones on your columns, like the ones you're referring to, I remember reading those at the time, obviously the Brady one, but the officiating crew one was was fantastic. It fully recommended to everyone. It was a great behind the scenes look and what you created there at the MMQB.com and the great pool of reporters you pulled together, I think changed the game and advanced the game in terms oh, of NFL journalism and reporting. But one thing I'm fascinated by is you've seen some of the beautiful moments of respect. You've seen the ugly moments, but you've seen the beautiful moments of respect in the game, you know, the good side of the game. Um, personally, I remember you writing about Tom Brady in the 2018 AFC Championship game, 
waiting outside for Patrick Mahomes um, and waiting to just give him credit, give him props. Um, And, you know, a a pickerful passing of the torch somewhat, you would say, looking on it in retrospect. Looking at things in your whole career, are there any couple of moments or couple of players in particular that stand out for you in that regard? You know, um, there's a, there are, you know, there's many, um, probably, uh, I wrote more about Brett Favre than any single player since I've covered the game. And the one thing that I'll never forget about Favre is, uh, after that year that we, uh, that I wrote this long story about the Packers, a week in the life of the Packers you know, this is ancient history. Now it's 25 quarter century ago, but Brett Favre um, became addicted to a painkiller called Vicodin. And uh, the NFL uh, basically gave him an ultimatum. If you don't go to rehab, uh, you're going to be suspended uh, for quite a while. And uh, so pretty much against his will, he did go to rehab, but the night before he left for rehab, he was his charity golf tournament was the following weekend in Biloxi, Mississippi. And he had called me and asked me, would you go? I'm trying to get this thing off the ground, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I'll go. So that night he called everybody who was going to the tournament and he said, hey, I'm going into rehab tomorrow, but I want to uh, just plead with you. Would you please keep this golf tournament alive because I've kind of promised a bunch of people some money out of this tournament, uh, special Olympics in the state of Mississippi, all this stuff. So I went and I said, Hey, by the way, you know, as long as I got you on the phone, what the hell happened? And he, he spent about 45 minutes telling me how he got addicted. And um, I can still hear this in my, in my, in my head, I can still hear this. And I never forget him saying, you know, everybody always says, man, they run into me and they say, man, what a great life you have. It must be great to be Brett Favre. And he said, how would they like to be Brett Favre if they felt the way I felt every Monday morning, you know, like I got run over by a truck. If I play all these games where all, a lot of guys don't play. And uh, if now tomorrow I'm going into a rehab facility to get off painkillers for six or eight weeks, would they want to be me then? And I just, I was like, oh my God, what a, what you talk about, you know, Favre always was that way. He always just totally bared his soul. Um, And I think maybe the one other person that, um, that I really got to know and got to be, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say friends with, because I've probably interviewed other people like Manning and Brady and, and, and other people more, but, you know, one, one person who I've, who I've really enjoyed, you know, sort of having a relationship with, and you'll think this is odd, but is with Frank Reich, the coach of the Indianapolis Colts. Now, Frank Reich, uh, as we talked a minute ago about, he's, he's got one of the greatest comebacks in NFL history. And, you know, he was the offensive coordinator of the Eagles in 2017. And because I knew him back, I covered that game for Sports Illustrated. 
his great comeback. And because I knew him well, a couple of times in 2017, he called me and he said, I cannot get an interview for a head coaching job. Look at the job we're doing. What? And he was just, re I mean, he was, it was like his dog just died. He just was so bummed out. What, what can I do to make people see and everything? And, and there was really nothing he could do. And so fast forward to, they win the Super Bowl. And Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator of the Patriots, drops out of the job. And uh, Chris Ballard, the GM of the Colts, goes, he interviewed seven people for this job. The number eight guy on his list, who he never interviewed, uh, was Frank Reich. So he called up Reich. He had an interview with him. He absolutely, totally fell in love with him. He hired him. And, you know, it's one of these, I'm not a particularly religious person. But it's one of these, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And the Indianapolis Colts, I don't care if Bill Walsh, Vince Lombardi, and Bill Parcells were available. They'd take Frank Reich to be their head coach. They love him. He loves them. It's a perfect match. So somehow, some way, it's like the other day I asked Kevin Stefanski, you know, I you know, obviously this weird story now, Stefanski is not going to be able to coach the Browns because he's got COVID and uh, or against Pittsburgh in the playoffs. But I asked him the other day, are you ever just a little bit bitter or a little bit unhappy that, you know, in 2019, you and Freddie Kitchens were the two finalists for the Browns job and you didn't get it. He got it. And they were a disaster. And now it's almost like you're, you're the, you came in second place. So ah, let's bring them in now. And he goes, no, he said, Minnesota in 2019 is where the Lord wanted me to be. And I'm a better coach because we had a great year there. I learned a lot more. So no, it's fine. I'm happy. Everything worked out. So I don't know. We could, if we sat here for five hours, I'd empty my saddlebag and I just, I'd tell you a bunch of stories like that, but those are two that kind of come to mind. Well, well Peter, you mentioned Frank Reich and you mentioned that comeback against the Oilers back in 93, but if you're that close with him and obviously he's then there in the Colts at the moment, has he told you whether he's going to trade for Carson Wentz to rejoin the No, Colts You know team? what? He was, he was on my podcast last week and, uh, and it was interesting. I said, I know, I mean, look, he can't, they can't discuss this now. It'd be tampering. You can't, and you can't say whether you're interested in another team's players. But I just said, I know you can't do that. But what is your relationship with Carson Wentz like? And what? And he said, I'm, I'm going to love him forever because he and Nick Foles, I'll have a relationship with them forever. And he was just really, really not emotional, but he was just really grateful for what they had done in helping him in his career. And they, hey, look, those, those guys, even though I don't like what Carson Wentz is doing now, um, you know, as Bucky Brooks uh, of NFL.com uh, wrote when Wentz started grousing about getting benched, hey, look, you stunk this year. And being named a quarterback in the NFL is not a lifetime appointment. So, you know, at some point, if you play lousy, you're going to get yanked. And uh, so I think that to me is something that really kind of sticks with me. 
<clears throat> about about uh, Reich and his relationship with those guys. He loves them. But again, you know, the other thing he said is, hey, look, this Philip Rivers has been unbelievable this year. And the, I could see the Colts saying to Philip Rivers at the end of this year, listen, cap's going down a little bit or staying flat. We got a lot of people we have to sign. You know, we'd love to have you back, but it's got to be a little bit on our terms, 20 million. And my gut feeling is that Rivers would probably say no. He's a prideful guy. And after taking a team to the playoffs and making 25 million, I think he would say, I'll just, you know, I've made enough money. I'm going to go start coaching my son in high school football in Alabama because that's what he's going to do with the rest of his life. He wants to be a high school coach till the end of time. So uh, maybe not till the end of time, but for the next 25 years, let's say. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I don't even know if I answered your question, but I, I think there's no question Frank Wright and the Colts would be interested in Wentz if uh, he shakes loose from Philadelphia. I think, um, I think it speaks volumes. Peter, your, your insight, your knowledge, your experience. I'm, I'm loving the game. I'm already coming around back again now. So I think we'll try very quickly and run around everyone again really quickly. But Peter, I hope you don't mind. This actually goes, it's actually an addition on to what I sent you the other day because to be fair, it happened after I sent the question. Uh, it's in yeah. relation to the Broncos. Um, I'm, I'm a big Broncos fan, so it's Colin. Um, obviously, Elway is now leaving his GM. Um, that's one element of the story. Obviously, at, at an end of an era in Denver, just, just your thoughts on that. And then very quickly, secondly, um, Obviously, I'm biased. You know, I feel like we have so many guys that are being overlooked in the Hall of Fame. However, a big year this year, Peyton Manning, hopefully. John Lynch has a good chance as well. But looking at guys like Randy Gratishar, do you think the time may eventually come for them or is it just a waiting game? My feeling is that, um, you know, Randy Gratishar and Carl Mecklenburg, you know, they were considered many, many years. And now they're being considered, you know, in the seniors committee. And... I would be surprised if they, not, not ever, but I'd be surprised. You don't really hear about them uh, being very hot candidates right now. So that's, that's what I would say about them. But about the current crop, I mean, Manning's obviously going to make it. Look, I think this is John Lynch's eighth year of eligibility. And I definitely think he belongs. I think one of the things that happened, and I've been, this is, I think, going to be my 30th year voting for the hall of fame and one of the things that happened is that for years i mean i'm not kidding for 20 years we all but ignored the safety position and we owe the safeties in the nfl more like i think charles woodson who is a half safety half corner i think he's going to get in this year but i hope that either lynch or i because i think leroy butler uh is is also uh, very deserving uh, of being in as well. But, and, and I, I, I hope we continue to address what had been a forgotten position. Um, and, and look, as far as the Broncos go, looking in the next two or three years, I, in my opinion, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not sure what they're going to do as far as their GM search goes. Um, but I do think, I applaud John Elway for saying, look, you know, I've pretty much had some crappy drafts. 
and I've had some unimpactful drafts. I've got the quarterback wrong consistently since Manning walked out the door. And if really you guys watch the Broncos all the time, I mean, do they have the long-term quarterback of the future? I really don't think so. So if I were the Broncos, honestly, I'll tell you what I would do. I would hire, uh, there's a bunch of, there's some really, really good general manager candidates. If I were them, I would try very hard to hire Terry Fontenot. I think he's the best talent evaluator out there right now. I'd try, I'd, I'd hire Terry Fontenot. And in my interviews with Terry Fontenot, I would say, do you have any objection with John Elway being a guy who scouts quarterbacks and who essentially uh, sits in with you in your quarterback evaluation. It's going to be your call. It's going to be your call, Terry Fontenot, or whoever they pick. I just happen to be a Fontenot guy. But it's going to be your call. But John really should, because look, John Elway was not going to take Drew Locke two years ago. Drew Locke fell into the Broncos' laps. And, you know, so he did like Drew Locke. Don't get me wrong. He liked him. And at whatever the number pick was, 40, 45, I forget what it was. But whatever the pick was, that was really good value. (coughs) But it shouldn't change the fact that John Elway, I don't believe, was in love with Drew Locke on the night of the weekend of that NFL draft. It just so happened that the value in, in him was so great. So if I'm Denver, I'm not even saying I'd pick a, a, a quarterback in the first round this year. But if I'm Denver, I, I'm happy with Elway, you know, studying the 15 quarterbacks in this draft who are going to get drafted and to come up with a really strong opinion on who they should draft and then tell Fontenot or whoever it is, but then it's got to be his choice you know, along with, um, you know, the head coach, Vic Fangio, if you're going to bring in a general manager, you've got to let him make the calls. And uh, so hopefully they do something like that. But I think John Elway stepping back right now is the best thing for the franchise. Peter, I suppose we're, we're in January where playoffs are about to begin. Um, you know, over the years, in terms of the Super Bowl, there have been some teams of destiny, and I'm probably biased as a Broncos fan. Elway towards the end, the helicopter play against the Packers, Peyton's last rodeo, you know, that had handshake with Belichick right in the, the championship game where he says, you know, this is probably my last rodeo and it's been an honor. Is there anyone this year that you you feel kind of has that um, team of destiny mantle or is it is it so whoever can beat the Chiefs? I think the two teams that I look at that I think, look, I'm not going to pick a number one seed uh, and I wouldn't even pick a number two seed, but the two teams that really interest me this year uh, because they got hot at the right time, uh, I guess I am going to pick a number two seed. Um, Buffalo, I think right now is the best team in the NFL. Um, and the other team is Tampa Bay. Now, Tampa Bay, um, I'll talk about them for a second. I think this is not all about Tom Brady. This is a lot about 
one part of their team that has really gone underreported. And that is the fact that they've built a pretty good offensive line with um, two guys who really, really stand out. Ali Marpet at guard and Tristan Wirfs at tackle have been absolutely terrific. And they've really solidified uh, that line and made it possible for Tom Brady to have the time he needs. Um, so I think they're interesting. And whether or not uh, Mike Evans plays, um, you know, obviously you saw that he went down with a knee injury last weekend. Whether or not Mike Evans plays, I think they're going to be a really, really interesting and dangerous team. And the other one I think is Buffalo. Um, I, I just look at how dangerous the quarterback is right now, Josh Allen, and I look at the defensive playmakers they have, you know, that are really underrated, you know, the Matt Milano, Jerry Hughes, you know, they've got so many interesting players. The, the whole secondary, other than Tredavious White, is just a bunch of unknown guys. But they've got a lot of playmakers on defense that I think are going to make it hard for even when they play Kansas City. I think Kansas City, if that is the matchup, will really have its hands full with Buffalo. I think those are the two teams that, in my opinion anyway, plus Green Bay, obviously, but those two teams among the non-number one seeds, I think are the most dangerous ones entering the playoffs. Peter, um, can we just touch on Roger Goodell for a moment? Um, mm -hmm. You know, he's had a lot of criticism throughout the years. He got challenged in March in terms of moving ahead with free agency. He even got challenged in April around the draft going ahead. People said he wouldn't pull off the season. 256 games have been played albeit on different days of the week, which is very unusual to what we're used to. But the season is going to get finished. Does he deserve a lot of credit for the organization that's been put in? A lot, because, you know, I wrote in my column in my Football Morning in America column on Monday, I had the top 20 most influential people in the NFL this year. Um, and, you know, there's no question who number one was. It's Goodell, because as you say, um, you know, People in the NFL have wanted to delay um, free agency, the draft, and then obviously the start of the season. And I talked to him on Labor Day weekend. Well, I talked to him early September. Uh, uh, and one of the things he said to me is, my answer when people said, hey, let's put things off, my answer always was, is it gonna be any better two weeks from now? If you have any assurance that it's gonna be better two weeks from now, I will put it off. But nobody has any idea what the future is with this COVID. If you were in the United States right now and you watch the evening news and you see what's going on in Los Angeles, I mean, you cannot, do not get sick in Los Angeles right now. Because if you get in an ambulance, 90% of the hospitals in greater Los Angeles are full and are telling ambulance drivers go somewhere else. So, you know, and again, I don't mean to, to be Debbie Downer here or to, or to make everybody, oh man, that's what a bummer. But that's the reality that Roger Goodell is lording over right now. That's our country. And our country is totally messed up. And so Roger Goodell is saying, look, we set out to do something at the start of this season. And what we decided to do right now is we are going to finish the season on time. 
I give him a lot of credit for it. And look, uh, John Elway, I remember after the draft, PR guy of the Broncos said, hey, Elway wants to talk to you. So I talked to John and he said to me, hey, he said, I want you to quote me on this. I'm on the record. Roger Goodell has done one hell of a job. And I agree with Elway and not just on the draft either. Everything involved this season. Peter, um, I'm going to give you one last point and then one last quick question, if you don't mind. Yep. Um, on the one last point, um, Colin said he's a stone throw away from the Guinness Brewery. I'm actually a stone's throw away from Croke Park, where I think you saw you two. Oh, yeah, I saw you two there, three. man. That was incredible. Yeah, so, you know, we, we, we have the best rock band in the world and the best you beer. Do. So you, you do. You do. Know, beard nerdness this week, Peter, should be Guinness. It should be Guinness every week. We should definitely be Guinness this week. <laughs> but one last quick question, and you alluded to the Chiefs there um, just a minute ago. Look, Patrick Mahomes seems like a bit of an alien. Let's just be clear about that. Not only for the stuff he's doing on the field, but the stuff he does off the field as well. Like there's the good causes, sports around Kansas City, his vocal support of Black Lives Matters, voter registration, voter awareness right. with LeBron. I mean, he married his high school sweetheart, proposing yeah. to her on the day of his Super Bowl ring. He just seems like, you know, I mean, he's too good, really. I mean, I'm really hoping you're going to tell me he pushes over old ladies or he steals candy. No, you know what? That's the thing. Or... You know, when when I when people ask me, <laughs> I'll tell them privately, you know, who's a jerk and and all that. Look, the NFL is in great hands with Patrick Mahomes, not just on the field, but I think off the field as well. Because look, I, uh, as I wrote the other day, Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs split the cost at over $200,000 US uh, to put in 25 voting machines at Arrowhead Stadium and uh, to, to staff those voting machines um, uh, you know, at the time of the election this year. Andy Reid voted at Arrowhead Stadium. And I have my doubts whether Andy Reid would have voted. I'm not saying he's not a patriot, but I'm saying that you know, to, to Andy Reid, nothing else matters during the season and game planning on a Tuesday. And election day is always on Tuesday. I don't know that Andy Reid was going was gonna to spend time, you know, going out to vote on a Tuesday. But be that as it may, he, he did something that reverberated far away from football. So, yes, absolutely unequivocally, I can tell you, Mahomes, uh, as they say, in many places in America, Mahomes is a mensch. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I know there's people who love us to ask you a million questions about Lafleur, about Breeze's last ride and everything. But I'll give you one last thing, Peter, on yeah. Mahomes. Jim Kelly told us last week, um, Mahomes doesn't have the best arm in the NFL. Justin Herbert doesn't have the best arm in the NFL. In his mind, and I'm not saying he's biased, but he might be a little bit, it's Josh Allen. I'm yeah. just wondering your thoughts on that one. Josh Allen's arm is unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. There's a few guys who've got incredible arms. I think Mahomes has an absolutely great arm. Uh, but I would agree with him. I bet, you know, that Josh Allen could stand at his 20-yard line and reach the goal line, throw it 80 yards in the air. Easy, not easy, but I bet he could do it. Maybe Mahomes could too, but I'm, I don't disagree with Jim. I would say this. So uh, Drew Bledsoe, who I'm sure you all remember, was this guy, great quarterback with at the time he played, you know, like in the 90s, um, 
he he had an incredible arm and a lot of people thought it was the best arm in football and one year he threw 606 passes for new england and the next year at training camp i was asking him questions about his arm and at one point he said peter he said i bet i threw 20 passes last year 20 25 passes last year that went more than say 30 yards in the air and so the vast majority of passes we throw are going to be short intermediate passes uh, very rarely are we going to throw rainbows and try to hit somebody 50 yards down the field so Bledsoe's point was that hey it's great to have a good arm but if you're only going to use it six eight ten times in a year to truly throw the ball as far as you can throw it who cares really you know it's so much more important to be accurate in the intermediate part of the field and to have the touch to to do that justin fields the ohio state quarterback who's going to be a high draft pick this year had this game the other day where uh uh you know he threw six touchdown passes in new orleans and uh ohio state killed uh clemson and so I remember thinking to myself, everybody's going to make a big deal over these long bomb touchdown passes he threw. And they should. They were incredibly good throws. But his best throw of the day was, I think it was either a 14 or 19-yard touchdown pass to his tight end in the back of the end zone. So the ball traveled maybe 25 yards in the air. And, you know, so that is what's important to a quarterback. Can you throw the ball? that you're going to have to throw 15 times a game accurately and with some zip on it when it has to be and some touch and loft on it when you want to place it in a perfect spot. Those are the thing I, things I believe that are important for quarterbacks. Peter, you've been incredibly generous for your time, man, and I feel like we could talk, we, we could talk to you for 10 hours. I'll tell you what, though, we will all buy you Zebra and Carlo, yeah, the next time you're <laughs> Massively appreciate it. And, uh, I know, I know we can find you on Pro Football Talk over here on Sky Sports NFL. I know Mark is a big fan of the show. Sorry, Brian's a big fan of the show as well. He watches it every other day. Him and Mike Florio and stuff. So oh, okay. thanks, thanks so much, man. Hey, no problem. Really enjoyed being on with you guys. Thanks a lot for uh, liking me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Okay.